This is Guns and Butter. November 22, 2002, marked the 39th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The murder changed current history and the course of events in ways that shaped the world we live in today. Guns and Butter attended the Coalition on Political Assassinations annual meeting in Dallas, Texas this year. At 12.30 p.m., the time the president was shot, hundreds of people gathered in Dealey Plaza in observance of that event. John Judge, coordinator of the coalition, was on hand to commemorate the occasion and talk about its significance. We live in a time now where it's more important than ever to have democracy. And we have to make a democracy out of this society if we're going to survive, if the world is going to survive. And the beginnings of this process started on November 22, 1963, with a military coup d'etat of this country. And we've been in the death grip of that military-industrial complex since that day, November 22, 1963. And when a people do not own their own history, they are a conquered people. And if we want to remain conquered, we'll leave our history in their hands. But our task has been to unearth this history that they want hidden from you and from the rest of us and to dig up the truth of what's happened. So we, we come out here every year, and I've come out here with Penn Jones when there used to be four of us standing in the rain for the last 39 years, come out every year for a moment of silence here to commemorate what happened on November 22, 1963. Uh, we're here now today, and in this moment, to try to remember someone, and he stood against them. He was going to pull out of Vietnam. He was going to reverse the arms race. He was going to end the Cold War. He was going to change the country in a direction that it's been reversed since since his death and keeps going in. And he was going to stand up to them. And that's part of the reason that he was eliminated and his brother was not allowed to get into office either. So we come out every year to commemorate John F. Kennedy, what he stood for, what we lost, and what we need to gain back if we're going to have a democracy in this country. So I'm going to read a poem. This poem is called Elegy for the Great Kite who were three Roman brothers who rose to the fore in an effort to restore democracy to Rome, which began as a republic and was taken over by the military, at the head of which was an emperor. They attempted to uh, restore the democracy and they were assassinated. Elegy for the Graeci. Nobody anymore, oh Lord, swing low. That's who plays touch football now on Hickory Hill. Beneath that other hill in Arlington, the public may leave flowers as it likes, but you might place a pebble on the stone. The moment his head hit the floor of the Ambassador Hotel, a continent away from the pooling disc of red, Nixon became too strong for his surviving sad opponents, and the flame that would incinerate the hopes of Muskie, Gene McCarthy, and the rest began to lick the walls of our unfinished dream house. There walks a specter on the American night, all right. More lonely than the moons of Mars, twin sterile boulders tumbling in the void. A ghost of youth in black and white, another ghost behind him gesturing, transparent, 
like film frames scratched and overexposed, the confiscated cipher of bright splashing Dallas sunshine in a can that Regis Kennedy, no relation, irony galore, stole and put it in his pocket. The pair of brothers falls down deep into the vault of what is gone, and death, colder than the fishes of the sea, upon his head and neck, chained in the purgative flames of his florid natural sins, his Catholic heart effulgent on the dark, cantering to a halt, to ride no more the miasmic welkin of the capital's dark winter, slack reins idle on the unmanned animal, the famous horseman gesticulating, gasping through the ancient neck wound, distantly thin image of distantly speaking lips, repeating something. Thank you. It's nice to see a lot of people here to commemorate these events on November 22nd and to take a look at this historic place. Uh, although when I think about it and you look at it, this is pretty much the dead end of Dallas. It's on the way out of town. It's uh, an industrial park, more or less, a jail down here and a book depository and a post office building. Not much here, not much of a place to die. As Kennedy was on his way out of town, uh, he's shot down like a dog in the street and his murder remains unsolved to this day in an official way, although it's no mystery to most of us where those bullets came from that day. We don't have to study the blade of grass or the grassy knoll or the sewer to the front or the book depository because we know those bullets came from the Pentagon. That was the direction that they took. And they felled him that day and they've been in charge since. These are shifts of power. They are ascendancies of segments of the rich against other segments of the rich. They are sections of the people that control this country taking power. And what was ascending from the end of World War II on was a southern rim economy, a military industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about, and it took control that day. And it's time that we, the American people, took back that control and made a democracy out of the mockery that they've made of this country from that day forward. John Judge opened the annual Coalition on Political Assassinations meeting of researchers and authors with remarks about left denial and double standards around the issues of conspiracy and assassination. The other thing I <laughs> thought if you can bear with it, I'd share with you is a little bit of a character by the name of Noam Chomsky. Some of you have heard of this person. Uh, he's, uh, as Mike Albert of Z Magazine says, the only left intellectual in America. I don't know which word with that to quibble with. But I think uh, there must be a few more. But in any case, he's probably the most published and mentioned and listened to left intellectual in America. So here he is. This is a book that's just come out called Understanding Power, the Indispensable Chomsky. And it's kind of an interesting book because instead of it being his lectures, where he sounds exactly as he sounds when he writes, this is, this is him in question and answer sessions. So you actually get a little spontaneity and a range of topics from the crowd. And, um, you know, it's a kind of interesting mix. And, I, you know, certainly he has things to say. But uh, this particular section in here, and it's interesting, too, that this book, the footnotes are not included in this book. They're, they give a website on the back of the, of the book to go to to look at the footnotes. So that's a new publishing feat. And uh, saves your paper. Um, but this particular section is called Conspiracy Theories. 
And someone in the audience says, Noam, you mentioned earlier how conspiracy theories take up a lot of energy in the left movements these days. I don't know any leftists that spend any time listening to them. Uh, particularly on the West Coast and with respect to the Kennedy assassination. And you said that, in your view, it's totally wasted effort. Do you really feel there's nothing at all worthwhile in that kind of inquiry? I'm doing this so you can see how this logic works, because it's a powerful one and one that's kept us out of a lot of the discourse in the alternative press. Well, let me put it this way. Every example we find of planning decisions in the society is a case where some people got together and tried to use whatever power they could draw upon to achieve a result. And if you like, those are conspiracies. So that's the first straw man. Everything's a conspiracy. That means that almost everything that happens in the world is a conspiracy. If the board of directors of General Motors gets together and decides what kind of car to produce next year, that's a conspiracy. Every business decision, every editorial decision is a conspiracy. If the linguistics department I work in decides who to appoint next year, that's a conspiracy. Okay, obviously that's not interesting. All decisions involve people. So the real question is, are there groupings well outside the structures of the major institutions of the society which go around them, hijack them, undermine them, and pursue other courses without an institutional base, and so on and so forth? So this is the second straw man. To be a conspiracy, you have to be totally outside the structures of power. And that's a question of fact. Do significant things happen because groups or subgroups are acting in secret outside the main structures of institutional power? Well, as I look over history, I don't find much of that. I mean, there are some cases. For instance, at one point, a group of Nazi generals thought of assassinating Hitler. Okay, that's a conspiracy. But things like that are real blips on the screen, as far as I can see. Now, if people want to spend time studying the group of Nazi generals who decided it was a time to get rid of Hitler, that's a fine topic for a monograph. Maybe somebody will write a thesis about it, but we're not going to learn anything about the world from it, and at least nothing that generalizes to the next case. It's all going to be historically contingent and specific, and it'll show you how one particular group of people acted under particular circumstances. Fine. I read that to Bill Kelly, and he howled. He's found four direct connections between the plotters and the Hitler assassination situation and the John F. Kennedy assassination including Mary Bancroft, Alan Dulles's mistress, who spirited Grontius, the major plotter, out of Germany uh, at the end, end of the situation. But there are many others. Um, and she, of course, is good friends with uh, Ruth Payne's mother. But these are blips on the screen. And if you look at the place where investigations of conspiracies has absolutely flourished modern American history, I think what's notable is the absence of such cases, at least as I read the record. They almost never happen. I mean, occasionally you'll find something like the Reaganites with their off-the-shelf subversive and terrorist activities, but that was sort of a fringe operation. <laughs> and in fact, part of the reason why a lot of it got exposed so quickly is because the institutions are simply too powerful to tolerate very much of that stuff. And as far as the Pentagon goes, sure, the services will push their own interests, but typically they do it in a pretty transparent way. Or take the CIA, which is considered the source of a lot of these conspiracies. We have a ton of information about it. And as I read the information, the CIA is basically just an obedient branch of the White House. I mean, sure, the CIA has done things around the world, but as far as we know, it hasn't done anything on its own. There's very little evidence, in fact, I don't know of any, that the CIA is some kind of rogue elephant, you know, off on its own doing things. What the record shows is that the CIA is just an agency of the White House. 
which sometimes carries out operations for which the executive branch wants what's called plausible deniability. In other words, if something goes wrong, we don't want it to look like we did it, these, those guys in the CIA did it, and we can throw some of them to the wolves if we need to. And that's basically the role of the CIA, along with mostly just collection of information. It's the same with the Trilateral Commission, the Council on Foreign Relations, and all the other things that people are racing around searching for conspiracy theories about. They're just nothing organizations. Of course, they're there. Obviously, rich people get together and talk to each other and play golf with each other and plan together. That's not a big surprise, but these conspiracy theories people are putting their energies into have virtually nothing to do with the way the institutions actually function. The Kennedy assassination cult is probably the most striking case. I mean, you have all these people doing super scholarly intensive research and trying to find out just who talked to whom and what the exact contours were of this supposed high-level conspiracy. And it's all complete nonsense. As soon as you look into the various theories, they always collapse. And there's just nothing there. But in many places, the left has just fallen apart on the basis of these sheer cults. So then this man in the audience has the perspicacity to ask the next question, which I always say, ask Chompiki, and here he goes. Well, there's maybe one exception, though. What about the Martin Luther King assassination? Now, tell, tell me if this is the same person you just heard speaking. That's interesting. See, that's the one case where you can imagine pretty plausible reasons why people would have wanted to kill him. And I wouldn't be in the least surprised if there was, in fact, a real conspiracy behind that one and probably a high-level conspiracy. <laughs> I mean, the mechanisms were there. Maybe they would have hired somebody from the mafia or something to do it, but that conspiracy theory is perfectly plausible, I think. And it's interesting. I'm not aware that there's been very much inquiry into it. Or if there has been, and I haven't heard about it. But in, in, in the case of the one that everybody's excited about, Kennedy, I mean, nobody's even come up with a plausible reason. <laughs> in fact, that's a pretty dramatic contrast, isn't it? The case of the King assassination is on its face very plausible, and the case of the Kennedy assassination is on its face extremely implausible, and yet look at the difference in treatment. Well, I hate to tell you, but the people that unearthed the King assassination are the people that unearthed the John F. Kennedy assassination. And if you think that the CIA is a little organization that waits for the next president to come in and tell it what to do, I suggest you come down to D.C. sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Those agencies last in perpetuity since they were created in 1948, and the presidents come and go. It's like Bill Moyers trying to tell us that the problem is, is that with government is that we have these otherwise legitimate government functions, but every once in a while to get something done, they have to dip their hands in the dirt and hang around with these gun runners and drug runners and these people they really shouldn't associate themselves with. And if they just stopped doing that, things would be okay. Whereas my view of the secret government is that it is the gun and drug runner, it is and is the criminals that are the government, and they in turn get some people in three-piece suits to stand up and pretend to be the government on their behalf. But you see, if you, if you take this position that it has to be totally outside the structures of power, then of course it's meaningless. But it isn't outside the structures of power. It's the way it works. It's business as usual. And uh, you know, we know that from our own study of the history. And to say that, it, that it's useless to study the details is striking enough. But the bottom line for Chomsky is, do you like the guy or not? If you don't like him, it wasn't a conspiracy. And that's really what it comes to. He doesn't think from his left critique of Kennedy that Kennedy was worth killing. Kennedy was just a ruling class bastard like the rest. 
he had it coming, you know, he was doing all the dirt, you know, so why bother studying it? And if you think that killing the president could make any difference, you don't understand how class structure works. You don't have to understand how things happen. You know, and you're just a starry-eyed liberal to think it makes any difference, and they wouldn't have killed Kennedy because, after all, Chomsky didn't like him, and he wasn't worth killing. But it's not the left critique of Kennedy that makes any difference. It's the right critique of Kennedy that makes the difference. It's not what Chomsky thought of him. It's what Curtis LeMay thought of him, because Chomsky isn't going to shoot him, and Curtis LeMay would. And that's the difference, and that's what you have to look at. You can go down the South today... And you, you can see in the homes of the poor, on the wall, pictures of Jesus, Martin Luther King, and the Kennedy brothers. Now, you can stick your leftist nose as far as you want in the air and say that was false hope, but it was hope. And it was a hope they knew was moving people, and they knew that Kennedy was responding to popular movements, and it's that hope that they meant to kill in Memphis and in Los Angeles and, and in Dallas here in 1963. Because there was somebody for the last time, and the two things I'd say is the last president that actually responded to the public will since that time, and also the last one that had enough brains between his ears to make them worth blowing out. Okay. And this attitude, you know, turns around completely when you talk about King. And that's why I say, you know, ask these fellows from the left who say there's no such thing as a conspiracy to explain the King assassination. And suddenly they become wilder conspiracy theorists than us. Because after all, there was a reason to kill Martin Luther King. Well, let's see this weekend if we can figure out if there was a reason to kill John F. Kennedy. I spoke with John Judge about the Coalition on Political Assassinations and his research into the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Could you tell me a little bit about the Coalition on Political Assassinations? It's a coalition that uh, grew in the uh, early 90s from the success of getting the JFK Records Act passed in 1992. It was a coalition of uh, the three major active research groups at that point. Much of the independent research community uh, and the issue itself on the John F. Kennedy assassination had fallen by the wayside somewhat by the mid to late 80s. And it was a concern for uh, myself and Bill Kelly, another researcher I work with, and we back then founded the Committee for an Open Archives because we believed that the next step that could go somewhere was not another congressional investigation, but to actually push to release the files that were still locked up under the House Select Committee rules and Johnson's executive order on the Kennedy assassination. And These were classified records that some people had attempted to get loose. Some of them Freedom of Information Act, but out without much luck. And we began to push. We got some legislation drafted. Henry Gonzalez drafted a bill for immediate release. But the, they had very little sponsorship or pressure behind them until Oliver Stone's film, JFK, came out. And one of the researchers suggested to him, and we backed that up within a visit that we made to him, to put something at the end of the film about the fact that the files were not let, loose yet and were still buried. And he did that, and it caused a huge groundswell of calls to Congress members from the public. The film also opened the question of the Kennedy assassination up to a whole new generation of people, probably two generations, that had, were not even born yet when Kennedy was killed. And so while it was a seminal event for many in my generation, and an event that they even would use to unravel amnesia patients, because they could get them to remember the Kennedy assassination and then remember outwards from there, it was a key to unlock people's memory about that era. 
almost everyone that I've ever heard of knew where they were and what they were doing when they heard that Kennedy had been killed or saw the events on TV uh, later that weekend. You're listening to author and researcher John Judge. This is Guns and Butter. In fact, the only four people that I ever saw make a statement that they didn't know where they were or couldn't remember, one was Richard Nixon in his deposition to the Warren Commission saying he couldn't recall where he'd been. He was actually in Dallas that day and flew out back to New York City. Richard Helms, who was with Bobby when Bobby got the call from J. Edgar Hoover, Bobby Kennedy got the call from J. Edgar Hoover telling him that his brother had been killed. Helms was right there, top man in the CIA, said he couldn't recall. E. Howard Hunt is another one of the Watergate figures, but also somebody that figures back into the time of the Kennedy assassination and all the way back to the Bad Pigs with the CIA, told different stories at different times about where he had been that day. So it's not an easy thing to forget, but for the newer generations, they had not heard the whole story. And Stone presented basically Jim Garrison's case a DA in New Orleans, district attorney, who tried to prosecute some people on a conspiracy to kill JFK. He did convince the jury that there had been a conspiracy, but his broader case at the time was undermined by collusion with the intelligence agencies, deaths or protection of certain witnesses out of state by governors who refused to extradite them, and by a barrage of press attack on his credibility. But many of the files that we've gotten released since back up Garrison's case. It got attacked and still does to this day in the press as an example of a movie that mixed uh, fact with fiction. But my response to that was that unlike most of Hollywood propaganda, which has absolutely no fact in it at all, uh, he had the gall to put facts into his movie, and that's what upset them. And so that led to a groundswell of opinion that the file should be released. And we pushed on that, the Committee for an Open Archives and other groups, and got the draft of a legislation passed that created the conditions for the largest release of classified documents in U.S. history, over six million pages to date, released on the Kennedy assassination and Kennedy era by the government agencies. And yet we know that not all the documents have yet been released, that whole agencies have still to date refused to comply with the act. It was so much better than the Freedom of Information Act, under which we got a few thousand pages over a 30-year period And then in a period of four years, we got over six million pages. So when that act was passed, it gave further impetus to a coalition to be formed to oversee the actual workings of the review board. So we were a liaison between the research community all around the country and thousands of researchers and this review board. But it was also a coalition of all the forensic and ballistic and medical experts, the academicians and authors and independent researchers who really had done the hard work and hard investigative work, scientific work on these cases. And we continued, as the files came out, to discover new things in them and to put forward the new evidence at national and regional meetings around the country from 1994 to the present. We continue to do the work, and we also have peer review and try to get really the best hard evidence that's new in these cases without getting into just uh, sheer speculation or sloppy research or uh, or theories. John, you mentioned Richard Nixon has yeah. been one of the people who couldn't remember where he was on the day that President Kennedy was assassinated. Yes. Wasn't there a meeting the night before in Dallas, the night before the assassination, in which Nixon was there? Who uh, else was there? 
Penn, Penn Jones, one of the researchers, had uh, uncovered evidence there in Texas of a meeting at the Murchison uh, Ranch, and there were a number of high-level people there, according to the report that he got. Richard Nixon, J. Edgar Hoover, there were people there from from CIA and top Dallas oil men as well. And even at one point, when the I think they at one point had had a prior meeting earlier in the day down at an office in Dallas, and Penn had found someone who said that one of Jack Ruby's strippers had been sent up to that meeting with a message from Ruby. So people that were considered central around the plotting seemed to have been meeting the night before. Nixon was in town for several days before the assassination, and there were mob elements there, uh, the Fox brothers, who uh, had meetings just prior to the assassination with Jack Ruby. John, why, in your opinion, was it important to assassinate President John Kennedy? Well, I think it was critical uh, at that point, juncture in history, to assassinate Kennedy for a particular rising element of money and class uh, power in the society. Carl Oglesby writes about this division in his book, The Yankee Cowboy War, positing the Yankees as the old Eastern establishment, investment capital, Atlanticists, the banking families of the old Eastern establishment, and that would have also included the top people in the Central Intelligence Agency, on sort of one side of the the class and making its decisions and running it, and the rise that Eisenhower warned about as he went out of office just before Kennedy came in of a growing military-industrial-intelligence complex that was carrying out a permanent war economy after the end of World War II for social hegemony and profit, and was also making tremendous amounts of money on not only that munitions industry, but aerospace and land speculation and oil discovery and profits in the southern rim uh, of the United States. And what's referred to as Bible Belt sometimes, or those sectors of California and Texas and across the uh, the southern states that had not prior to that been the real center of uh, income, but moved into that position. And Kirkpatrick Sale wrote a book about that shift called Power Shift, about the move after the end of World War II of money into that sector. H.L. Hunt, the Dallas oil man, who some suspect had a role in killing Kennedy, he was richer than the Rockefellers, but he didn't spread his money around quite so wisely or manipulate people as well. And similarly, there were many new fortunes that grew up, and there were people that were more nativist, more focused on U.S. policy for the U.S. alone, were not internationalist in any sense, and that were reactionary, who wanted you know, a, more of a permanent war economy in a fortress state. And these people, I believe, took power through a military coup d'etat on November 22, 1963, Kennedy was a very intelligent president. He brought in intelligent people. Of course, being intelligent does make you right all the time. The Vietnam War is a shining example of what the best and brightest brought us. But they were people that were intellectual and had uh, academic backgrounds and had a reasoned approach to foreign policy, at least somewhat, in the middle of the Cold War. And there's a story about Kennedy at his first meal with his cabinet in one of the dining rooms in the White House, and he he remarks at the end, gentlemen, there hasn't been this much intelligence assembled in this room since Jefferson dined here alone. And Kennedy was challenging them. He and Bobby were out from under the iron thumb of the father, Joe Kennedy, 
who had been more reactionary and more of a sort of proto-fascist, a Hitler supporter at one point, which got him kicked out of the court of England, and a person that had been involved in dirty money and mob money uh, at the end of World War II with liquor deals. And he really was no longer in charge. And the young Kennedys began to respond to massive popular movements that were going on at the time, including the civil rights movement, the international movement for nuclear disarmament, and a general sentiment against uh, continued war. And they inherited those popular movements and some of the legacies. They had a sense also of people being oppressed, having come from an Irish family, which, although it was rich in, uh, in Boston, in the Back Bay Brahmin class that they frequented, they were shunned and looked down upon because they were Irish and not, not English. And so they knew something about discrimination. And they had ideals about government. For instance, none of the Kennedy uh, family in office ever took money. I think they, Bobby and John took $2 a year. Of course, some of that is how rich they were, but also I think it was an indication that they saw this really as civil service and not as a, a chance, unlike many other presidents, to make a profit off of off of what they were going to do for the public. And they were giving people, therefore, a sense of hope that things could change. And to this day, if you go down to the communities in the South and the rural poor in the United States, you will see pictures on the wall of Jesus Christ, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and the Kennedy brothers, because people did have a sense of hope. And they were moving racial integration too slow for the entire black community, but too fast for the Southern Rim racists. And they were backing up the civil rights movement with federal forces, if you remember, and federal intervention, which was enraging elements of the South. They were also going after the mob through Bobby Kennedy in the Justice Department, and they fought Hoffa and other key mobsters. They were taking contrary positions even to Wall Street, like in the U.S. Steel strike, and supporting labor at, uh, at key junctures and not allowing people to make excessive profits in the corporate world. They were threatening to end the oil tax depletion allowance, which was a tax write-off for the oil companies that amounted in 1963 to $27 billion a year for the whole oil industry. And that was real money in those years, and it meant that they could finance elections in the United States at the national level, which many of them did. Richard Nixon was put into office by a fund created at the end of the war, headed up by Prescott Bush and some other, other ruling class figures, called the Committee of 100, where 100 men put up $100,000 each to have a, a war chest to run a candidate. And then they put an ad in the California paper saying, no experience necessary, asking for someone to run for president. And Nixon was preened from the 19, late 1940s to 1960 to win that presidential position, starting with state races and the anti-communist rhetoric that he used in the 50s and putting him in positions where he would get national attention to prep him to be the president and through you know his congressional stints. So those elections were all meant to put him into office, and they were ready to put him in in the 1960 election. They did not expect John F. Kennedy to win that election. Some say that he won it on the turn of a electoral college vote that was manipulated by dirty dealings of Richard Daley in Chicago, who was an old friend of the, the father. But in any case, it was a situation where Nixon appeared to have gotten the popular vote, but Kennedy won the Electoral College vote. And it was a relatively close election, but you know Nixon didn't uh, challenge it, supposedly on the advice of Eisenhower, now we hear. And Kennedy came into office, but all these 
other elements of money had been planning to put Nixon in instead, and I'm sure they were not happy with the fact that Kennedy took office. He also had been intervening in attempts to kill Castro or raid Cuba that postdated the Bay of Pigs. And he very significantly, of course, had refused to send U.S. military troops into the Bay of Pigs, which, by all appearances to me, was set up to fail so that it would force his hand and force him to bring in U.S. Uh, military legions and, and planes in order to bomb Havana and take Castro out. And when he refused that and backed off, he was pilloried by elements in the CIA and made an enemy of the anti-Castro community, who in this aborted attempt to take over Castro lost. Then there were subsequent raids, and he sent people in to break up some of them, including a raid of a, a Schlumberger family arms case at a factory they owned at Lake Pontchartrain outside of New Orleans. And that, that particular case of weapons and the Cubans around them who were using them in these, in these raid attempts centered around David Ferry and the people, uh, Guy Bannister and the people that Oswald knew in New Orleans. And Kennedy sent federal agents in to break up that particular arms case in that Cuban. Uh, he said he stopped boats going to Cuba. And in back channels, he began to reach out to Castro to try to normalize relations. And that's one of the things I believe that the CIA got wind of and then turned into a way to involve anti-Castro Cubans in the assassination plot at the mechanical level by telling them that Kennedy was making deals with Castro instead of supporting them. And these were fairly murderous individuals that they had had come out of Cuba when Batista fell. They were people with fortunes there. They had a history of violence here in the United States and, and against Cuba. And uh, they were people that were, I think, easy to involve uh, with their hatred and to see Kennedy as some sort of traitor to their cause. In addition to that, Kennedy uh, had also come to realize that the CIA had lied to him at the Bay of Pigs. He fired Alan Dulles. He fired Richard Bissell and the top leaders of the Bay of Pig operation from the CIA. And near the end of his life, he had intimated that he would take Bobby out of the Justice Department, his brother, and put him in to head the CIA. He had already inserted Bobby in Operation Mongoose, which allegedly were plots to kill Castro. And much of the left press and other others that attack Kennedy's say that this is an example where it shows that Bobby was part of plots to kill Castro. I think, in fact, Bobby was inserted to stop the Castro kill plots, and that's why he went into Mongoose. And I also don't believe that Mongoose was what it said it was, that it was really a plot to seriously kill Castro, because I think if in my view, if the intelligence agencies could kill Kennedy, they certainly could have killed Castro if they wanted to. But Castro was useful to them as a whipping boy and a communist threat 90 miles off the U.S. shore. So I think what they were doing was developing a domestic assassination capability that then they in part turned on John F. Kennedy and others since. Alpha 66, Omega 7 have done many political killings here in the United States. And uh, these Cuban teams, Cubans were used in the raids on, in the Congo and against Patrice Lumumba and figured into the assassination of Lumumba. And they exist as a standing army here in the United States that Bernard Barker said he hadn't contacted any of his Cuban Bay of Pigs boys for 20 years, but he got back in touch with them in 20 minutes to set them up to help him with the Watergate break-in. So, you know, they've been financed. They got jobs early on through mafia contacts in Miami, and they've been basically a recruiting 
field for a mercenary army used by the intelligence agencies throughout those years, and I think the Kennedys were going in to stop them. John F. Kennedy in October, just before his death, October 1963, said he was going to scatter the CIA to the four winds. He had also angered the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Cuban Missile Crisis when it's clear now from the transcripts of the JFK Act released that a good section of the Joint Chiefs and the advisors around Kennedy felt that there was a window of opportunity that they had gotten ahead of Russia quite a bit in the missile gap, what they called it in those years, and that even though there would be some loss, that it was worth going into a nuclear war with the Soviet Union and over this issue and getting it over with. Now, the issue was that the Soviet Union had inserted nuclear missiles and, and launchers that were capable of launching nuclear weapons into the United States. They had inserted those into Cuba. And uh, the U.S., through spy photography from the U-2 spy plane, had gotten pictures of the Quonset Hutton trucks that they said uh, proved that the weapons had been brought in and where they were being stored. These photographs actually were part of spy photography that the military was doing and then turning over to private firms in order to do the analysis on it. And at that time, the National Reconnaissance Organization, its initials weren't known, was taking these various spy photographs and then sending them out to Dallas-Fort Worth to a company called Jagger Child Stovall in order to do the analysis work and photo reduction and blow up. And they then would send the analysis back. And when I saw an exhibit on the U-2 at Dulles Airport some years ago, there was a glossy photograph of one of the photographs that it, that it identified as uh, these these missile sites in Cuba, and one of the one of the photographs that led to the Cuban Missile Crisis, to the analysis and decision to go head to head over getting these missiles removed. And typed on the bottom of this photograph was courtesy of Jagger Charles Stovall. Now the significance of this is that everyone that worked at Jagger Charles Stovall had to have a full security clearance from the Office of Naval Intelligence. And the person that was their photo enlargement and microdot expert was none other in that year was none other than Lee Harvey Oswald. And so these photos come out of a place where Oswald's working. They're interpreted to lead into what could have become a nuclear confrontation. Everyone was holding their breath. I mean, I remember being a schoolchild then and listening to the radio. The classes were canceled. We all thought the next thing that would happen would be that we'd go to nuclear war. And now we know from the inside discussions that Kennedy stood almost alone in saying, gentlemen, this is nuclear war. This is not an option. We can't go this direction, whereas the rest of them were gung-ho and ready to go and ready to take the losses in order to finally wipe out the Soviet Union. So he stood against them there, and in one of the last speeches of his life at the graduation of American University on June the 10th, he gave a talk, and there's a plaque still at the American U campus at the end of the football field where he gave it to the graduating class, where he laid out what kind of peace the United States needed to work toward. And he said it was specifically not a Pax Americana and a global control, but a real peace that came from justice and international relations. And he said that the arms race was out of control and that they had to end not only the Cold War, but the arms race itself and begin to make arrangements with the Soviet Union to dismantle the entire nuclear arsenal. These are words that people would like to hear, but the Joint Chiefs did not. And then in that speech, she has the phrase that part of the reason that that has to be done is that all of us want to raise our children in the world. All of us want to breathe the same air. We all live on the same planet. 
and we're all mortal. And so these are the kinds of directions that Kennedy was pursuing. In addition to that, he had made specific plans to withdraw all U.S. forces out of Vietnam by the end of 1964 and begun a withdrawal of troops from Vietnam quietly and reversed the military policy there. And that policy was re-reversed, and a 10-year war with 57,000 American dead was planned and put into motion on the Monday following the Kennedy assassination. As soon as he was out of the way, the planners reversed it, and many of these other things also never came to fruition, and the Cold War and the permanent war economy were continued. You're listening to author and researcher John Judge. This is Guns and Butter. So I think there were many groups that had a reason to kill Kennedy. I think the actual planning and operation came from this aerospace and munition, southern rim economy, and was engineered by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Curtis LeMay, Lyman Lemnitzer, Maxwell Taylor in specific, possibly also Arleigh Burke, and maybe the Commander Shoup in the Marines, although he was not at the Pentagon that uh, that day. He was over at Bethesda getting a medical for the year, an annual medical checkup. So he may have been out of the loop. And I did notice that he was the only one, Shoup, to speak out publicly against the Vietnam War or any former Joint Chiefs of Staff member. He was the only one that spoke out that way. So he may have been removed from the tight circle that was on the need to know. But there are many things that happened that day, and we can talk about them on November 22nd, that indicate that this was a military coup d'etat, not anything done at the very low levels of uh, of it being, you know, merely anti-Castro-Cubans or merely a mob plot or even merely CIA operation. These people aren't weren't capable of doing it with impunity. Didn't the phone system go down in Washington? Yes. Uh, my parents were government employees at the Pentagon, civilian employees at the Pentagon, and both my aunt and my mother told me at the moment of the Kennedy assassination that the not the Bell telephones, because Sam Donaldson's tried to contradict this, saying that he called in on a Bell telephone. These were the what they called FedEx or Federal Exchange telephones. These are secure, scrambled lines that allow the different cabinet offices, like State, Defense, Agriculture, Treasury, to communicate with each other securely without being listened to. And it was those lines that went dead right at the moment of the Kennedy assassination at 1.30 p.m., uh, our time, 12.30 Dallas time, and stayed down for a period of two hours. In addition to that, I discovered in my work that on November 22nd, pilots in the air for the Strategic Air Command, which is the nuclear defense of the United States, they go up on eight-hour shifts. Uh, they heard radio chatter that the president had been shot in Dallas. They assumed that this might lead to an emergency response, and they went in preparation, anticipation of that, to get their decrypting code books out, because those books, first of all, allow them to know that they're getting a legitimate signal from the presidential black box or nuclear football or from one of the commander control centers, the Pentagon War Room or the White House Situation Room or the underground command and control centers in mountainsides across the country. So first they could legitimize the message. Then those messages can take them all the way out to failsafe, which is a non-return command for actual nuclear war. And they were in the air. They had the defense of the United States in their hands that hour. But when they went to get their code book, it was missing. They told me that 16 people have to sign off on the code book to put it on and off the plane, that it's changed at regular intervals so the codes won't be compromised, and that the person that designed that system was General Curtis LeMay. 
a racist, no friend of the Kennedys. He ran with George Wallace, and he was seen also grinning and smoking a cigar in the bleachers at the autopsy at Bethesda Naval Hospital later that day. He had been at some sort of meetings out, so he says, we don't know for sure, but his story is that he was out of the country at the time Kennedy was hit, but he was back soon enough to be at his autopsy. And when I went into some of the files about what happened that day, an early box was released by the National Security Agency, and there was a finding guide mention of a folder called DEFCON Status, November 22, 1963. That's the defense condition of the United States, whether it's on the lowest normal alert as one, and then it goes all the way up to a full five alert, which is war. And I went to see, given the fact that the president had been murdered by person or persons unknown, what was the military response? Also, when these pilots came back down off their shift, they told me that none of the other pilots in the air that eight-hour shift had had code books aboard, and they were all quite surprised at that and a lot of consternation about it. It literally meant that the defense of the United States compromised in that hour, and it meant that, I believe, somebody outside of the need-to-know loop could not take this patsy Oswald who had been planted to take the blame, who had been dipped read by a phony defection program into and out of the Soviet Union, and similar doubling attempts to link him to Castro and the Soviet Union again just weeks before the assassination that the CIA ran, a second Oswald down in Mexico City to do this in and out of the embassies. So they knew that they had what looked like a, a red on their hands having killed the president, and they, I believe they didn't want anybody outside of their plotting to freak out and actually go into nuclear war with the Soviet Union, so they disarmed. And when I went to this DEFCON status, I found sheets there first from the uh, the Pentagon press office reports that day of calls that came in and rumors that they tried to dispel. And one rumor that came in was that Curtis LeMay had died in a plane crash that day. And I thought that that was an interesting rumor to have been circulated. Why would they circulate that kind of a rumor? Well, I think to, in a sense, like take heat off of him or maybe make unclear what his location was or what he was doing that day. I just thought it was interesting that he, of the Joint Chiefs, was the only one mentioned in these rumors that were floating around. And his story is that he was in Canada and flew back. We don't know where he was, but just the fact to me that there was any kind of a disinformation rumor in the press about him that day made it interesting to me. And who started it and why was it there, we don't know. The other thing in there were sheets from CONUS, Continental United States, USARUR, U.S. Army in Europe, ASEAN, which is the whole Southeast Asian sector, SOUTHCOM, Southern Command, which is Latin America and Central America and that sector. These are whole sort of continental, regional areas that the military covers around the world. And it was their DEFCON sheets. And there was not a blip on any of these sheets that day, November 22nd. There was not a change in the defense condition status. There was no alert sent. The only thing that happened was in Vietnam specifically, and only Vietnam, they went from a 5, which is stasis, they went from a 5 up to a 4, which is a listen-up alert, meaning that expect commands to come through. So they were about to change status in Vietnam, but no one else even though you don't have any information who's really killed the president and the indicators from Oswald is that it's the Soviet Union, there's no alert given out in any of the sectors of the U.S. military around the world and here at home. 
all of these, to me, are indicators of a military operation in coup d'etat that could not have been touched by an anti-Castro Cuban, a mobster, or even a CIA operative. And what many people don't understand is that the CIA is a think tank. It may plan out an operation, but it's incapable of carrying it out. It either has to subcontract it out to private firms, or if it's going to be military or paramilitary, it usually then uses elements of the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, which even though that is 100 times the budget and 10 times the employees of the CIA and the FBI combined, most people have never heard of the DIA, never heard those initials. It includes the National Security Agency, which spies on all electronic communications around the world, the National Reconnaissance Organization, which tracks all satellite information around the world, every branch intelligence office, naval intelligence, the oldest and largest intelligence network trained by the British initially, Army intelligence, Marine Corps intelligence, Air Force intelligence, and the largest internal police force in the United States, the Defense Industry Security Command Office. And this, at that time, was headquartered out of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and they also had an office in Columbus, Ohio. And there are indications that the DISC is involved in other murders, including the murder of Karen Silkwood later on, because of information she had about uh, transshipment of bomb-grade plutonium through Israel to South Africa that was coming out of the Kermagee plant, and that that was why she had to be silenced, and that the ISC guards put uranium into her sink, her toilet, into the food in her refrigerator in order to, to try to murder her. And then eventually, when she tried to get the news out to the New York Times, she was driven off the road in a car that had no documents in it. It was stripped clean, obviously, after they had killed her. But there's many indications that this police force serves a nefarious purpose. It was created as part of the Tennessee Valley Authority to guard the atomic secrets at the beginnings of the Manhattan Project, and it became a rationale for secrecy and spying on civilians. The military had much more extensive spy files on civilians than the CIA did, and the military basically serves as a, there's a liaison person between the Defense Department and Pentagon and the CIA to figure out what equipment and troops and whatever they need to carry out paramilitary covert operations abroad or here in the United States. So I believe that this really, the command structure of this, comes down from the tops of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I believe on the mechanical and lower level they involved Dallas oil men, anti-Castro Cubans, anybody they could find who hated Kennedy for any reason, because those people at the time were willing to take credit, and then if necessary later individually they could take blame but they would be the fingers, and their palm would never be seen. But uh, what happened November 22nd, 63, I believe, was a killing of Kennedy, a killing of hope for social change, that the leaders that came in after that, Johnson, especially who had been put into political office by George Brown of Brown and Root, which made $4 billion in profit off of the construction of the Cameron Bay sites and other construction projects for Vietnam, and now Brown and Root is assimilated under, under uh, Halliburton which is making money already doing base in a box, these military bases that can be sent out and built anywhere in the world with the armed civilians doing the infrastructure building and then preparing them for the U.S. military to come in and take them over as a base. And certainly Halliburton and the oil industry make tremendous profits on war. War is, as Smedley Butler said, the former commandant of the Marine Corps, a racket. And uh, they test weapons, they use weapons that then have to be rebuilt they keep up uh, a constant pressure to take tax monies away from social services and human needs and Social Security and put it into increased intelligence and 
budgets. And then on top of that, they have black budgets or hidden budgets that come, I believe, primarily from opium traffic and cocaine traffic around the world to carry out their covert operations here and abroad that they don't ever reveal to the American public. Because I've said that one of the reasons that the CIA refuses to release its budget is that it wouldn't cover its operations, and they'd have to explain where they're getting the rest of their money. John, in closing, then, is it correct to say that you feel that the assassinations are still vitally important because we are presently still living this history? Well, I think history itself has its claims, and that there's a reason to look at the assassinations just as history. We've passed now into a new eon, a new century. But for me and for the conditions that I see in the world, these are still fresh questions that beg to be answered because we can't understand how we got to our current status without understanding the assassinations and what they meant in our political history uh, 40 years ago. And uh, it was that shift that they created that really put into power the forces that are still running this country and pushing us into war and creating the domestic repression at home. All of that stemmed out of the fact that we didn't end the arms race, we didn't end the Cold War, we didn't call off the massive corporate profits, Uh, we didn't scatter the CIA to the four winds, as Kennedy said he would do, we didn't end the the nuclear nightmare or the militarization and the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned about. All of that just got worse and led to our current situation today. And some of the players are still in top positions in government and retained their positions through that period. And so the things that I think Kennedy might have changed, or at least would have tried to change, remained in place. And the hope that Bobby Kennedy would come in and do something different, reopen the case, was shattered in Los Angeles in 1968. And, you know, this is not to say that I believe the Kennedys were saints or that it was a perfect democracy prior to November 22, 1963, but it is to say that forces moved, sections of the class ascended, conditions were changed by that assassination that are are very significant to where we are today. So even if if only you want to believe it in solving these cases as murders and for just the sheer justice that a homicide deserves an adequate explanation, even for a family, much less for a president and a country, what does it say to young black people if they want to follow in the in the footsteps of Martin Luther King, that people will not resolve his murder, and who killed him? It, what it seems to mean to me is that uh, we will let them be killed as well and not investigate their death either, and that doesn't encourage people to move forward. In my view, uh, it encourages a deep cynicism that keeps people from from moving. And then also because we can't get at the history without breaking these things open and know where we are and unearth the history as we did with the JFK Act. We exist in a, in a limbo that Martin Schatz described in his book, The History Will Not Absolve Us. Uh, he described this as a, a political paralysis in America that's caused by the fact that we're al- allowed to believe anything but to know nothing. And so all of our attempts to get at the truth are pilloried in the press as theory. And all of our attempts to restore history and get at the truth of history uh, you know, are marked as some sort of uh, fantasizing. But my position is that you can call me a conspiracy theorist if you call everyone else a coincidence theorist. My historical reconstruction is no less valuable or valid than anyone else's without some open debate. Mine isn't automatically a theory because it posits the idea of a conspiracy 
and yours is, is history because it buries that idea. Something happening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> John Judge is an independent researcher, author, and lecturer. He is author of Judge for Yourself, a compendium of research articles and lectures about covert operations, hidden history, and assassinations. His writings, as well as others mentioned in this broadcast, are available from the Last Hurrah Bookshop by calling 570-321-1150 or link to the bookshop's website through ours at www.gunsandbutter.net. You can write to John Judge at copa at tidalwave.net. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yaromako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628, or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you see-